Today, I wanted to turn our attention in God's Word to that passage I read to you earlier this morning out of John chapter 1. I'm going to just read verse 14 and then have some prayer and we'll begin to look at this passage since I had read the whole passage to you earlier uh, that we're going to be examining together. So the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for a time to be together, to gather to worship, to encourage one another, but also to gather to study Your Word. And now in this time we pray that your Holy Spirit would carry out an illumining ministry in each of our hearts. That we would understand the things you took the trouble to say and breathe out. We would recognize the application of what you've said. And that through your Holy Spirit indwelling us, we would find the enablement to go in the direction of obedience in what we think and in what we do, in light of what you've said. Give us alertness of mind as we have time together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I wanted to focus in, in a way, even as our songs have today, I wanted to focus in on the wonder of the incarnation. Because for the believer, I'm not talking about the world around us, but for the believer, the Bible believer, uh, Christmas is actually much less about a manger and vastly more about the incarnation, the idea that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word incarnation is a, uh, it's a biblical word, but uh, we find it more in the form of incarnate in the scriptures. Uh, but it's a good theological biblical word. It means it's describing the miracle of the Word of God, which John chapter 1 told us was God, the, in this case the second person of the triune God. It was the miracle of that God becoming flesh and dwelling among the creation, you and I. It was the theological biblical picture of the eternal Son of God voluntarily adding human body, human nature, uh, in the incarnation. And as a result, the Lord Jesus Christ, being fully God, also became fully man. The God-man. That reality, which is fairly easy to say, is much more difficult to grasp. In fact, it's a little bit beyond grasping. A little bit beyond the levels of our comprehension. The Bible itself makes it very clear who was born in Bethlehem. We know it was the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And as we'll see today, it also makes very clear why he was born there. So those things we can really get a good grasp on. But when it comes to the how, I mean, how did this actually work? How, how did you do that, God? I mean, I'm not talking the sequencing that went on. Because we know that sequencing, uh, but how did you do that? How, how, did, how did God become flesh and dwell among us? We encounter something that is very much 
just beyond the ability of human beings to grasp. You know, when I was working on my doctorate, there would be concepts and theories that at first were very difficult to grasp, but the longer and longer you worked at it, you finally could see where they were coming from, uh, enough to even articulate it back to the professors that it mattered to, to indicate you understood that. That doesn't mean you agreed with what you saw, but it just simply means you finally grasped it. But brothers and sisters, because this is the breathed out word of the God who is really there, he is not like us, it ought not to surprise us that there's going to be revealed things in here that no matter how long you studied it, you'd be left saying, I know what you're saying, I believe what you're saying, but I can't quite grasp it all. It's, it's like a little beyond. It isn't going to be a matter of more days given over to meditating on it. There, there, it's beyond what I can grasp. I, I see that also in Paul at the end of the 11th chapter of Romans after covering so much of the things. He says, the unsearchable ways of God, you know. Uh, that's really what we're talking about in the incarnation is unsearchable if we're if we mean by that, that we can step back and say, aha, I finally understand how the intricacies of this all worked out. Uh, but even with that reality, it is still central to our gospel. Uh, it doesn't bother me to have things like that in the scriptures, by the way. It convinces me of the inerrancy of the scripture. It convinces me that the scriptures aren't the product of human beings. If, they were, if it was the product of human beings, there would never be anything ultimately you couldn't figure out. You couldn't grasp entirely if you gave it enough time. Or you'd find it was stupid. <laughs> All right, some, uh, but you'd still be able to come to some conclusion about it. But when you get in the Word, you start to encounter those things that you say, well, this is not the, of this world. This, there are things here just beyond. So how could they have originated in human beings? It's, it's, it's out there. At least God's used it in that way in my life. So it was like, well, what other choice do you have than to say there's divine origin for this? This must, in point of fact, be God breathing it out. <laughs> because it's telling us of things we could never really comprehend otherwise. Now, this incarnation that we're talking about here, this word made flesh and dwelt among us, we must understand that the scripture takes that profound truth, really, and it builds on it, and it tells us there is no true Christianity without the miracle of that incarnation. Oh, there's lots of religious Christianity out there that doesn't build on that foundation. But there's no biblical true Christianity apart from it. That truth is that central. It's a temptation sometimes to look at those kinds of issues, like the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, and to think, well, maybe, yeah, that's profound, but maybe it's not all that important. Uh, maybe it's okay to just kind of put it off to the side, because aren't there, in fact, more central and important things that make up our Christian faith? But I want you to listen to this message that God makes very plain to us in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, the incarnation, word made flesh and dwelt among us, is from God. 
But then he goes further and he says, In every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard from the was coming and now is in the world already. Point. The incarnation is required belief. Not something just that you answer on your theology test. All right? This is required belief. Everyone who claims to be right with God, and certainly every teacher who says they are teaching God's truth to the world, must, must accept the incarnation. It doesn't matter how kindly, how caring, how hip a pastor may be. If they do not profess the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us in space and time, real person, they are not from God. They are not from God. It's one of the criteria I use, by the way, in trying to ascertain where is somebody anyway when I'm talking about professional ministry. And I'll often get in, used to getting conversations more with different pastors, and I'd quiz them about it. Saying, hey, what do you think about this? What does this mean? And that was pretty clear cut then. They might have been really neat guys and nice, personable people, and I'd rather kind of be around them than somebody that was stealing my wallet. But the fact of the matter is, they were not from God, no matter what people thought. Because you can't be from God and not be teaching and believing the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Practically, that says, it's not enough that a Christian, somebody who professes Christ, or that a pastor or a Christian leader says Jesus was a great teacher, a wonderful moral example. Well, he was. But that's not enough. That's not enough. What do you say about Jesus Christ being the Word made flesh to dwell among us? Oh, well, that's just sort of a spiritual, mystical thing. Uh, no, it's a space and time thing. Happened in Bethlehem, you know. Uh, he was made flesh to dwell among us. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hmm. Word made flesh and dwelt among us. He took on flesh and blood. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, in talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, For in him the whole fullness of God, the whole fullness of deity, dwells in bodily form. Yeah, word made flesh, dwelt among us. Yeah, 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 that's, that's what he says. And of course, as John 1.14 put it, <laughs> the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen him, and we've seen his glory. Now, why do I keep making a point of this? Because the Bible makes a point of it. <laughs> that's why. Uh, without the profound mystery, and yet revealed mystery, of the Incarnation... Christmas is ultimately meaningless. 
It doesn't rank any higher than Halloween on the cultural calendar of holidays. Why? <laughs> because Christmas, biblically, is vastly more than a heartwarming story about a birth of a baby in adverse conditions under the oppressive rule of Rome, and yeah, they had to be born in a stable, and all oh, sort of mythical anyway, isn't it? And yet, isn't it heartwarming? No. If, if you don't understand the Incarnation, you don't understand why the Bible makes such a point about it, uh, you miss the whole point of what was going on in Bethlehem. If Christmas is really at its heart just about showing more love and kindness to people, then by the way, I challenge you, listen to Christmas movies, list, read Christmas cards, sadly listen to pulpits, you'll find that in one way or another, basically they're saying, well, Christmas is all about just showing more love and showing more kindness. And isn't this a special time of year that we can have these feelings? <laughs> Listen, if Christmas is merely about showing more love and kindness, you might as well spend your time just decorating trees and watching Hallmark movies, because that's all it is. Sadly, there's an awful lot of people spend their lives here and go into eternity thinking it's just about loving-kindness. Hey, it's not wrong for us to be more loving and kind. There's lots of biblical admonition about that, which is all about what growing as a disciple is all about and reflecting more of the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not like that's a bad thing, but that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is celebrating a vastly greater truth that the second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. Our kids should be put in awe by that. Not other things. Not that there's not something we can have fun with with other things around them. <laughs> but don't let them get in awe of the wrong thing. And don't let them see you get in awe of the wrong thing. I was thinking of some of these uh, Christians that uh, from the past who said some things I want to read to you. C.S. Lewis, in talking about the Incarnation, he said, Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. Lewis always had a way, didn't he? Uh, putting massive amount in just a short sentence or two. I've never succeeded with that, by the way. I don't know if anybody saw that. But uh, he was able to do that. He could, uh, he could pull it together. And I look at that and say, boy, C.S. Lewis, you got, you got that right. R.C. Sproul said this, If what we celebrate at Christmas isn't so much the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of God himself. Yeah, yeah, R.C., that's, that's right. J.I. Packer put it this way, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed, and changed and taught to talk like any other child, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. And of course, G.I. Packer was one of the great scholars of the 20th century. Uh, Augustine put it this way, 
And not everything that grew out of Augustine should he be blamed for, by the way. Just a separate issue here. But listen to how he put it, because this is, so, this is right there. He says, man's maker, remember how John 1 began, the one who created us? Nothing's been created apart from his action. Man's maker was made man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger. The fountain, thirst. The light, sleep. The way, be tired in its journey. That truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher, be beaten with whips. The foundation, be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. And that the healer might be wounded. That life might die. I'm thinking, I'd love to sit down over coffee with this guy. And one day I'll have a chance, not over coffee maybe. Well, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, Adam and I, maybe possibly that's part of it. Yeah. But uh, we'll have a chance to talk. And I'm just thinking, God, there's some people you've really touched and worked with and have come to know you and know your word. And I... I love to sit their feet a little bit. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit more. Thinking of this from Dean Martin Lloyd Jones, one of my personal heroes of the faith, really, uh, with the Lord now, standing for truth in the British Isles and Wales, really, at a time when the church was almost entirely apostate, not completely, but almost. And he said, If you do not believe in the unique deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, whatever else you may be. We're not looking at a good man only. We're not interested merely in the greatest teacher the world's ever seen. We are face to face with the fact that God, the eternal Son, has been in this world. And that he took upon him human nature. And he dwelt among us, a man amongst men. The God-man. We are face to face with the mystery and the marvel of the incarnation and of the virgin birth. It's all here. And it shines out in all the fullness of its amazing glory. What manner of man is this? He's more than man. That's the answer. He's also God. Well, I could go on and on. uh, Because they all get close to this reality that we're talking about. The incarnation. Now let's look at what the word tells us about the one who was born. Isaiah 7.14, one of the well-known prophetic passages says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, we've been talking about Emmanuel today. She'll call his name Emmanuel. The who, who was born in Bethlehem, is explained to us here. (laughs) The Bible doesn't hide the fact. It's like, oh, I wonder who that baby was. Oh, I'm glad you asked. Here it is. The one who was born... He was a man born of a virgin. Matthew 1, Luke 1 and 2 explain that part of it vastly more for us. Lots of details to add to it. Uh, the virgin birth was intimately linked to the incarnation for reasons theologically and biblically that we'd understand if we understood the way sin was transmitted and so forth. But nonetheless, it was a virgin birth, a miracle. But it wasn't just a baby boy born. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You see? 
So how could a man possibly be born of a virgin? You know, God says, well, he was. And you're going to call him Emmanuel. Literally, God with us. I was thinking of Jesus speaking to Thomas in John 14, verses 8 and 9. It says, uh, and I'm sorry, speaking to Philip, and he said, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Uh, ah, God with us. Uh-huh. Yeah, God with us. Now, how could, how could anybody be given the name Emmanuel without it being blasphemy? Now, I know a lot of people have that name in different parts of our world, and even in the United States, just because that's a, a name where people don't think about what it means, so they use it. But how could you use that name knowing that it meant what it said without it being blasphemy to call this baby who would grow to become a man Emmanuel, unless he actually was. And of course it wasn't blasphemy because that's, that's who he was. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, we read these words, The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. God continues to explain to us this word made flesh to dwell among us. The baby who was born there in Bethlehem is the one who is the great light. In John 1.9, he said, The true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. Notice this true great light came into a dark world. That's the description that God gives of where you and I live. It's not the description you read in utopian literature or in optimistic humanism about where our world's going. It's a dark world, and not just because it's running into climatological struggles. It's a dark world because of sin. It's a dark world because of rebellion against God. In fact, he describes it this way, a land of deep darkness. The Hebrew idea of deep here means immeasurable. You ever wondered how deep the problems of humanity are? Beyond measure, and therefore beyond solution. Unless the one who created the world brings the solution into play. That's what God says our world's about. And it was that world living in deep darkness that he sent his son into. And that's what we're supposed to be celebrating. It wasn't just dark the night of Christmas so that in the fields around Bethlehem they'd see the star in the sky. Everything was dark even on the noontime because everything was lost. That's what the scripture describes. I was thinking of Ephesians chapter 4 in that regard, verses 17 and 18. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. That's what it means to live in a land of deep darkness. 
means to live among ignorant people, of which all of us lived and were. I didn't come to know Christ because I wasn't ignorant. I came to know Christ because I repented and believed in the gospel. I was ignorant. I proudly come before the Lord and say, what an idiot I was. And yet you love me enough to send your son to die for me. I was in darkness. But you didn't leave me there. I was in a group of people, and part of it, by the way I was living, that was hard of heart towards you, rebelling against you, didn't want anything to do with you. You still love me, and you sent your son. The word made flesh and dwelt among us. Our world is dark because of sin. Who is it that could be a light in that sort of deep darkness? Nothing short of the word, who is God, made flesh to dwell among us. That's what it took. Is it any wonder that the Bible says, hey, this incarnation stuff, that's central. (laughs) You miss the point unless you understand this is what's going on. You miss the point. I was thinking further in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, it says in verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The, the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The incarnation is tied to the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Uh, incarnation's clear here, isn't it? Child born, son given. Same. Same. Human, divine. And the government will be upon his shoulders. That's the messianic title, by the way, the Hebrew messianic title. Uh, only one can have the messianic title. Government upon his shoulders, the word made flesh to dwell among us. The one who, in fact, is the Messiah. The one who it describes here as being wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. How could anybody in good conscience be called those names unless they were something more than just a nice moral guy? No. Be blasphemy. But if he was the word made flesh to dwell among us, then those names are highly appropriate names (laughs) to think about this one. Of course, Micah 5, 2, another of the prophetic passages, beginning in verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the very ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What's he saying? He's saying his birth was not his beginning. Did you catch it? He says his birth, this Bethlehem event, that's not where he began. 
You say, oh, well, yeah, he began nine months before that in that miraculous working of the Holy Spirit within the womb of Mary. And, well, yeah, he did begin working there, but that wasn't his beginning. His beginning, as it translates it here in the ESV, is from of ancient days. The King James Version translates it, and more accurately, by the way, in my reading of it, to study of the passage, uh, his goings forth have been of old from everlasting, or eternity. Meaning, his beginnings were in eternity. That's where he started. What we see happening and being revealed in Bethlehem, that one born there didn't begin there. Uh, he began in eternity. Sounds like John 1, one doesn't it? The beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. But Bethlehem, nonetheless, was important enough to point out prophetically, and then to have chapters in the New Testament given over to. Why? Because this one, who did not begin at Bethlehem, began a new stage in the process of God's plan of salvation there at Bethlehem. God's great plan to save men and women, sinners, ignorant and rebellion against him in this deep darkness, started to take form. <laughs> it was in eternity past that he created it, but it started to take form Word made flesh among us, dwelt among us, started to take form there. We could see him interceding in life and in history. And he was through his birth and his death and his resurrection and in his return. As he puts it here, creating a flock. <laughs> that one born is the one he describes in these verses as our peace. Remember Romans 5.1? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our peace. You don't think about finding peace with God if all you do is think about a baby in Bethlehem as a heartwarming story. Because there you're just thinking about the peacefulness of the setting. The peace of Christmas isn't the peacefulness of the setting. It's the fact that the one who was born makes it possible for us to have peace. We who are at enmity with God. Peace. We can have that. He says, he'll be our shepherd. <laughs> so, we have one now to guide us and protect us because he wasn't just some quasi-mystical character. He, he lived, he died, he rose again. He can be our shepherd. And he can be our security. He says, and they shall dwell secure. You ever think about that? I can be secure as I live as a child of God because of the incarnation, because it was, in fact, the Word made flesh to dwell among us who came. My security is resting in the deity of that one, the wonder of it, to dwell secure. You say, well, why is that so important? Because we live in a land of deep darkness. That's why it's important. How do you find security other than just by naivete if you live in deep darkness? God says, well, you still live there, but I'm light and darkness. <laughs> and you can dwell secure 
in me. And, of course, he ends that by saying, one day his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. The one born that day in that Bethlehem manger will be the ruler of the Messianic kingdom. (laughs) It's all going to be his. All right, so that's who was born. You know, the the God-man prophesied. I had to keep cutting out verses, by the way, but that's, that's, uh, that's who was born. But it's only when we're clear who came that we are in a place to understand why he came. Why did this Christ, word made flesh to dwell among us, why did this incarnation occur? And the answer to that is real straightforward in the scriptures, because it was the only way to save lost men and women, of which all of us fit in that category. We were lost. Thinking of John 3, two chapters after what we're looking at here, in verses 16 and 7, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Why? It was already condemned but in order that the world might be saved through him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 21, that we studied some while ago when we were in that portion of 1 Peter. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the very foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Manifest means word made flesh to dwell among us. Uh, In these times, for you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So why all of this about the Incarnation? Why did he come? Because it's the only way we could be saved. Pretty straightforward, really, in the Scriptures. The baby born at Bethlehem was born to die for us. That's what it's about. And any time you detach the birth from why the birth, you don't understand the birth. So is it any wonder that people are trying to find some sort of meaning in the birth instead of in the why of the birth? I was thinking of 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 in this regard. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Okay, what's that saying? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's why Bethlehem. All right, that's why. And of course, then Paul adds, of whom I'm the foremost, which everyone who sees the truth about their own heart says, no, no, not you, Paul, me. And they say, well, not you, me. Uh, The more we see ourselves, the more we say, all right, I'm the chief of the reason you came. If we don't see ourselves that way, we haven't really seen ourselves very accurately, have we? We could only be saved by the incarnation, by the shedding of his precious blood, which there wouldn't have been any to shed, 
had the Word not been made flesh to dwell among us. Do you see how the Bible ties it all together for us? So, here's my point. We'll draw it to a close with this. It's only the people who have come to trust in Christ as their Savior, their personal Savior, who are in a place to truly celebrate what Christmas season's all about. If one doesn't know Christ, rest in his work on the cross. They miss the very point, not only of Christmas, but of life. That's the point of life. To see myself as I am, oh Lord. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sinner and separated. Save me. God says, I do, and I will. I send my son, word made flesh to dwell among you. He lived, he died, rose again. Son in heaven, he's coming again. Trust in him. It's understanding that this word made flesh and dwelt among us is at the heart of what Christmas is all about. Helps us to understand what 2 Corinthians 9.15 means when it says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Uh, Literally, unutterable gift. Meaning, we simply can't put into words how amazing and wonderful it is. I mean, we can try, nothing wrong with trying, but ultimately we fall sort of short. Uh, We just can't quite frame it right. You ever had that feeling about some piece of gratitude you felt inside about something and you tried to say thanks for it, but you just, you just felt, this is inadequate. The way I'm saying it doesn't, doesn't quite communicate what I need to communicate about this. That's what's happening here. The wonder of the gift and what it involved is so unbelievable that we can't really express what we feel to God. However, we can act on it. We can say, because this is true, I'll accept that gift. Because this is true, I'll admit my sin. I'll turn from what I've been trying to do. I want to get out of this deep darkness. I want to know Christ. I I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is granted through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we know the incarnate one, we can see past the parties and gift giving. Not because they're bad things in and of themselves, but we see past it enough to see, well, this is nice, but it's not not really what this is, the heart of what's going on here. It's fine to give gifts. I'm not saying that shouldn't, but something vastly more important. (laughs) And we can see it. And we can say... The baby that was born in the manger, that baby was born so that baby could suffer and die for me. That's the only reason he's there. And his birth led to his death, but also to his resurrection, also to his ascension into heaven, and also to his returning again, all of which is because he is the incarnate one, the word made flesh to dwell among us. That's what it's about. And because Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, came and died and rose again, I can have forgiveness, new life, and eternal life. 
That's why the incarnation is important. If I try to fixate on saying, I'm just trying to understand the mechanics of how you did this incarnation, we will always remain perplexed. Because all of those mechanics are just a bit beyond our comprehension. How does the Creator do all of that? If we focus on why, we can grasp that. And we can see what we're supposed to do about it. It's okay to be bewildered by the word at times. As mystery is revealed to you and you say, I know there's more to say about this, Lord. Uh, I'm looking forward to, now I see darkly, I'll see right when I'm with you about this. Help me not to spend all my time preoccupied trying to fill in the blanks, but believe you have reasons for not trying to fill in the blanks. And instead, I'll wait for you to fill in the blanks. I'm just going to focus on the part of this that I can understand. And I'll act on it. A good piece of advice for all of us as we seek to be a biblically obedient people. Act on what's clear. And rejoice in what isn't. Because it just should remind us that our true Heavenly Father is more than a man, more than a Santa Claus. He is the Creator who loved us enough to send His Son into the world. It shouldn't surprise us that He is more than us. And while we're created in His image, we're not God. But Jesus is and was pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, for your truth. Oh Lord, help us to be a people in awe of your message of the incarnation, the wonder of what actually is going on here in Bethlehem. We want to enjoy all other aspects of the season, Lord, and certainly be more loving and kind. But oh Lord, Help us not to set our sights too low. Help us to see what it's really all about. That will keep us centered. Well, thank you as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.